it doesn't really matter how bad your or not bad your acute COVID was, you may still be vulnerable to the post-acute and chronic COVID. When COVID-19 first emerged, we fixated on deaths, death rates and hospital admissions. As those deaths started to fall and the likely millions of people who had milder symptoms recovered, many of them found that several months later they still had symptoms such as breathlessness, chest pain and fatigue. Any new paper in the BMJ, Trish Greenhouse and colleagues describe post-acute COVID-19, often referred to as long COVID, and offer practical advice to help clinicians help patients with these symptoms. I'm Tom Nolan, a clinical editor for the BMJ and London-based GP. And to dis- discuss this with me, I'm joined by Trish Greenhouse, Professor of Primary Care at the University of Oxford. Hi, Trish. Hiya. Thank you for joining me today. Um, so maybe we should go back to the, the beginning there. Like, I mean, is there a definition of, of long COVID or post-acute COVID? Well, one of the interesting things was we looked at 82 papers. Uh, you know, that's the number of references in the paper, in, in our new paper. And... Um, Not a single one of them actually gave a definition of post-acute COVID or chronic COVID, um, which is quite interesting because I think acute COVID is now quite well defined. I mean, I haven't got the definition at my fingertips. Um, And so what we did for this paper was we we defined it pragmatically. And I talked to Matt about this and said, well, what, what do you think? You know, when would you expect a GP to start referring patients or when would, you, when would you start feeling troubled that things haven't quite got better? And that's where, you know, so it really sort of came from the kind of clinical, um, practical wisdom of what would a consultant say? Hmm, that's a bit unusual. Um, so if, they, if they're not better by three weeks, we're, we're surprised because most people are better by three weeks. And if they're not better by 12 weeks, that's, that's even more of a surprise. So that's how we defined it. And, and we very carefully didn't claim that we were defining it for everyone. We said for the purposes of this paper, which, you know, leaves people open to get together one of those um, consensus groups and, and start defining it differently. But uh, it may be that, that the definition that we've adopted, you know, gets taken up. I don't know. Let's see. Um, so in the paper, you, you, you talk the reader through the symptoms that, that people can, can have and, and kind of how to interpret some of those symptoms. I mean, what, what are the key, key things to look for? Well, I think one of the really interesting things about this disease is that it can manifest in every organ in the body and it can give you just about every symptom in the book. Uh, and fortunately, I'm past the stage of taking postgraduate exams, but I'm, I'm just waiting for those multiple choice questions with all the different symptoms. Uh, and, and the last answer is all of the above. And I think I think COVID is going to be one of those. We, we used to say TB, sarcoid and syphilis were the three conditions that, that could give you just about anything. And I think COVID can. But um, actually, I wrote it down because I was on telly earlier on. And I thought they might ask me this. The commonest symptoms are cough fever and fatigue, apparently. So persistent, grumbling, low-grade fever, uh, cough, uh, which, you know, is, it's usually dry but can be productive, and that sort of pervasive feeling of just being wiped out. Those are the three things that, that uh, are most commonly uh, associated with uh, post-acute COVID. But in addition, 
Uh, people can feel mentally exhausted. They can have mood swings, anxiety. Some people get palpitations. And that's actually, I think, rather commoner than we let on in the paper. Um, you know, it's a couple of people contact me saying, hey, you left out my palpitations. Um, drop in blood pressure on standing up. That's another thing people come, come up with. Um, all sorts of weird skin rashes. I mean, you know, just about any kind of rash, you know, the maculopapular, the erythematous, the goodness knows what kind of rash and those COVID toes. I mean, I think the GPs listening to this will be familiar with what their patients are presenting with. But there isn't there isn't really a pattern to it. And I think that is, I suppose, that one of the defining things about it Um is is that it's it's very very non-specific. Yeah, and do we have any idea about how it happens, why it happens to some people and not others? Is all that just completely unknown? I think it's pretty unknown. Um, I mean, I'm not an immunologist, I'm not an infectious diseases person, but I've been following some of the debates, and one of the cardinal things about the debates is that they don't agree with each other. So I was all excited about mast cell activation syndrome uh, and, and patients who've got that syndrome would say, oh, well, if I take the medication for my mast cell activation syndrome, it's, it helps my post-COVID syndrome. And then there'll be other patients saying, well, I've got that and it didn't, it didn't help mine. But also the immunologists are saying, well, it, it's, it looks like it might fit, but it doesn't actually fit. And so I suspect we've got a new syndrome here. I suspect that, you know, some clever people will eventually tease out what's going on at a cellular level. But I think in the, in the end, you know, I'm a GP, you're a GP. And from a general practice perspective, if we take the whole patient, I think it's actually much easier to get your head around. What we've got is someone who has had a nasty virus the virus is still in their body. They are feeling wiped out and it's having a major effect on their lives. So they can't work. They can't interact with their family properly. They can't interact, you know, do leisure things. Like they can't go out, you know, for a drink with people because they, they're just too tired or they're coughing too much or they're too breathless. Uh, and I think if we take it from at a general practice level, without trying to deconstruct what's going on with the cells or or you know the membranes or whatever, then I think it becomes less scary and easier to manage. Because let's face it, as GPs, we we kind of know what to do when someone's you know tired after an illness. That's that's something that that. It, we're quite good at actually, you know, you have to talk to them about getting back to work and, and what they can and can't do and what help they might need and give them a bit of moral support. It's, you know, let's get it into that space is what I think. Yeah, yeah. So so sorry to drag us back to uh, the biomedical model here, but uh, there are some complica- really important complications that I think um, certainly in our practice we have um, struggled over PE being one and probably myocarditis. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. And can we say I about suppose that? that one of the big messages of the paper is that um, you've you've got to distinguish in a patient who's had COVID and who isn't better. You've got to distinguish between. Um, the non-specific stuff, which is what most people get, and the much less common but more serious, um, say, thromboembolic complications. Uh, and so what we've got, you know, people can get pulmonary emboli, they can have strokes, they can, they can have myocardial infarctions, they can get a myocarditis, uh, leading uh, often to heart failure. 
um, and other things that are in the paper. Now, now, that all sounds terrifying, but actually the way you would diagnose a myocardial infarction post-COVID is the same as you would diagnose a myocardial infarction in, in anyone else. So, you know, and similarly stroke, similarly PE, these things present um, in the same way as they would normally present. Now, the problem is that the non-specific complications, uh, I'll give you an example, lung burn. So if you go into the lay literature, if you go into you know, the body politic, uh, you know, which is a group of a uh, large group of people with post-COVID and they, they are active on Facebook and, and other social media, uh, they talk about lung burn. Um, now, what's lung burn? Well, I don't know what it is pathophysiologically, but it's something that is very, very common in people who subsequently get better. It doesn't usually herald a pulmonary embolus, which presents with, you know, breathlessness and the kind of chest pain you'd expect a pulmonary embolus to give you. Um, another example is brain fog. So it's a lay term. We all know what it means. We've probably all had it. I had it when I was on chemotherapy, for example. Um, you're just a bit dulled. That doesn't mean you're having a stroke. And so I think um, the skill in general practice, and this is always what we have to do as GPs, is distinguish the patient who can be safely managed in primary care from the patient who needs to be referred. So what we say in the paper is the thing that would precipitate a referral, the thing that would trigger a referral is clinical concern. People who are not just not getting better, but who are getting worse, someone who's acutely deteriorating for example they you know they were breathless but they're much much more breathless today um and something that just doesn't seem right you know focal paralysis i don't know you tell me but uh in in other words it's it's the stuff that we've been taught to spot in anyone so given that this is so common now but it's all very much at the forefront of our minds particularly in general practice um my, my one of my concerns is that we we then mislabel things as long COVID that are actually, you know, other bad stuff or worse stuff, which um, uh, particularly given that people, a lot of people haven't been seeing their doctors about things for a long time. And um, we may be seeing disease at a slightly more advanced stage. Uh, and this has certainly been something that which um, sadly has happened within within the place where I work in, in, in London. So Yeah, yeah. And I, uh, I mean, just as I remember we were writing that first article on acute COVID. Look, the patient might not even have COVID. Um, you know, they may just be having a pulmonary embolus or a, or a stroke or goodness knows what else. Um, and likewise, when a patient who had COVID three months ago you know, comes to you with, with, you know, a weird batch of symptoms, of course, they may have any of the non-COVID conditions as well. I suppose particularly when they've got comorbidity. Uh, I was talking to someone the other day who was, who was saying, you know, that because diabetes control can go a little bit awry, uh, it, you know, with long COVID, well, you, you've got all the diabetes complications that you can, uh, you've got to start thinking about. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. But really important point, Tom. Yeah. Yeah. Um and I guess, but we as GPs need um, need the help of our secondary care colleagues, don't we? Um, locally, not to name names, but uh, there is a COVID clinic. But if you weren't admitted to hospital, then they don't accept the referral, and you just get put in the routine referral pile. Is there an issue? Yes, there, there definitely. More generally, there definitely is an issue there because most conditions 
if you're going to get long-term complications, you have probably had a bad version of the acute illness. So if you had pneumonia bad enough to be in hospital, you're more likely to have symptoms six months later, you know, that kind of thing. Now, that doesn't seem to be the case for COVID. And, and, and I may eat my words in a year's time, but what seems to be happening is it doesn't really matter how bad your or not bad your acute COVID was, you may still be vulnerable to the post-acute and chronic COVID. Unfortunately, the penny hasn't dropped with everybody. So, for example, there's a huge um, research study that's just started. It's been in, it's been funded to the tune of several million um, pounds. It's based in Leicester, and there's there's branches of it all over the country. Um, but in order to be in the denominator population for that follow-up study, you've got to have been admitted to hospital. Now, that's not a bad thing. It's going to tell us what happens to people who've been admitted to hospital. But there isn't, as far as I know, another research study where the inception cohort, in other words, the kind of group that you want to follow up, uh, has been recruited from the community. And, and that's a shame. Anyway, to get back to your question of, of, hang on a minute, who do we refer and, and are secondary care interested in these patients who they've never seen before because they weren't admitted? Yes, there is a problem. And I'm very much hoping that the paper that we've just published will um, influence the people running the COVID clinics to realise that uh, they need to they need to be available for all patients with post-acute COVID and not just the ones uh, who've had a spell in ICU or on the ward. Yeah, yeah. So I want to turn to another part of the paper, which was about uh, uh, home oxygen saturation monitoring, which um, we had a bit of back and forth about during the uh, process of, of um, drafting the paper. Um, can you talk us through where, where, where that's a good idea and how it's helpful? Yeah, yeah, it is interesting. Um, part of this is quite pragmatic because unlike thermometers or blood pressure monitors, most people do not own an oximeter. So for most patients, it, it was an entirely new thing. Most people had never even heard of one. So there was a question of, hang on a minute, is it a good idea with someone who's not very well to tell them to go and buy this new piece of equipment that they might not know how to use? Would it make them anxious? You know, all that kind of thing. And I suppose Matt Knight, my co-author, and I are at one extreme among clinicians who say, yes, we think there should be an oximeter in every home. Everybody should, you know, play around with them. They, they should become like the family thermometer, that kind of thing. Now, there are other doctors, particularly, who say, no, you shouldn't really be doing this because people are going to be falsely reassured or they're going to be falsely alarmed. Uh, and again, there's no real evidence. But as you know, Tom, we you sent us back to look very carefully at the literature to see if there was any evidence that having a home oximeter causes harm. And we couldn't find any. So that's the first thing. It doesn't seem to be inherently dangerous to encourage patients to take oxygen readings. Second thing is um, some people are better than others at using any kind of kit. We've all seen people who can't use a thermometer or a blood pressure machine or a peak flow meter. So whether or not the patient is capable or a relative is capable of taking an oximeter reading is something you're going to have to use your judgment on. Um, 
I would say, actually, if you're um, if you do have the benefit of a video consultation and you've got an oximeter yourself, then you can sometimes show the patient how to use it by putting it on your own finger, you know, all that kind of thing. But nevertheless, we, you know, the whole user error thing is quite big. So then you've got the question, of, well, what level of oxygen um, saturation is is good or bad and all the rest of it? Uh, and as you know, again, we were, I wouldn't say we were making it up as we, we went along, because I think what we're doing is basing it on Matt Knight's extensive experience of home oxygen monitoring. Um, so a lot of the research into home oxygen monitoring comes from patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. You know, the COPD patients are the ones that have got the oximeters, but they're also the ones with the very abnormal oxygen level. So you can't base anything on them. Um so I suppose the thing, rather than give you, um, you know, try and remember the exact levels we put in the paper, let, let's have something a bit more pragmatic. We all remember the oxygen haemoglobin dissociation curve and the idea that it's, it's quite good to be up the top of it. The difference between a reading of 96 and 95 and 94 and 93 uh, is quite a lot in terms of how much oxygen is actually getting to your tissues. And so it may only look like 1%, but it, it may be an, an important 1% because of that, that uh, you're, you're on the kind of steep slope of the curve. So that's one thing to kind of remember as a, a little memory nugget. Um, another thing is to say um, the oximeter has got to be used properly, meaning that, you know, it's a bit like with your blood pressure, you know, you've got to be sitting down, calm, you know, not doing something, you know, not playing the trombone while you're while you're measuring it, you know, all those kind of things. So so there's a there's a bit in there about how to take the reading. And then there's a really important issue of change. So, you know, if you've got someone who's chugging along and they're 95, 95, 95, 95, then that's probably not a problem. On the other hand, if they were 98 yesterday and they're 95 today and they've got chest pain and they didn't have yesterday, that's more of an issue. So it's, you know, you've got to factor all that in. But in the paper, we do give some specific guidance, which was which was written by Matt. uh, And yeah, people need to look that up and um, If they don't like it, they should send a rapid response, by the way, because, you know, we do need to have debate about this. And I know one of the other things you wanted to talk to me about was the uncertainty around this because it's a new disease. So, you know, we've got the rapid responses there. uh, And and if someone's got a better idea for, for cutoffs, then let's have a dialogue about it. I think one of my concerns with that is that we're still doing a lot of this remotely on the phone or, you know, sometimes video. um, And there's a temptation to use the you know use the oxygen probe instead of a full examination and I suppose that's about to be my next question do, does somebody or at what point do you say actually I just need to see you in person and, and, and let's just do go back to basics well this is a really interesting one because I've got some research money to look at uh, remote assessment of people with uh, COVID and I've just been analyzing some interview data and Mostly, as I'm sure you know, Tom, um, the video is not very often used. Uh, mostly GPs are, are, are doing assessments by phone. And then if, if patient doesn't, you know, if they think the patient needs seeing, then they'll bring them into the surgery and put PPE on. But I have been talking to some GPs who do use video assessment. And if you ask them the question, well, who do you think video assessment is really useful for? And they say eyeballing 
eyeballing. I, I use it to eyeball people. And you think, this is really interesting. I remember being taught at medical school to eyeball a patient from the end of the bed. So what are you actually assessing when you're eyeballing? So that was one of the questions I was asking uh, GPs uh, when I was interviewing. And mostly they, they say it's particularly useful for children, particularly age between one and, say, 15, when the mum or the dad's up, you know, thinks they're really quite unwell, uh, turn the video on, you can see the kids running around the kitchen or whatever, and you immediately know that the kid is not that unwell. And then you can have a different conversation with mum or dad uh, because you know you don't need to dial 999 and get an ambulance. But but actually, when you all you had was a description over the phone, oh, he's not looking too good, doctor. Now, if you go transfer that across to the patient with um, post-acute COVID, uh, the sorts of things that you can see by video uh, are things like pallor, cyanosis, um, respiratory effort, distress, uh, but also just general stuff about how they are, how how perky they are. You know, that um, someone called it orbital triage, which I thought was quite an interesting uh, term. So, yes, that plus the oximeter. But, you know, the other thing about the video is that you, as I say, you might be able to talk them through taking their blood pressure, taking their pulse, because, of course, the oximeter's got a pulse um, reading as well. Um, actually, I um, recently, um, or a relative of mine, ordered a um, COVID test, a uh, private COVID test, and what we had to do was open the packet and then they would video us and the the nurse on the other end would talk you through how to prick your finger and how to how to get the blood onto the little test and all that kind of thing. And then you could hold the test, which looked a bit like a pregnancy test. You could hold it up and so she'd help you read it. So I think this whole business of using video to support the patient in doing a test that was actually designed for a professional to do, I think that's a whole new area of um, of clinical medicine, and, and um, so, yeah. So it's not necessary that we need um, we need to go back and in, into the consultation room with, with these patients. I think it depends on the patient. Um, yeah. You know, there's a lot of people. You know, the Mac Hancock's of this world who are really keen to kind of self manage and um, get the gadget and do their own stuff, and then and then just sort of contact the GP when they want a prescription or what have you. But I think we all know that there are other patients who, for whom, that is not um, a preferred approach. And um, you know, I don't want to be ageist. I'm over sixty myself now. <laughs> the the whole thing about the the elderly patient with their big bag of medication, you've looked after them for the last twenty years, and and you, you know they don't want you to abandon them right now because they're really not feeling very well. We do need continuity of care. We do need holistic care, um, and we need the sort of. Um, that wonderful expression Iona Heath uses, the witness to suffering. I think that's a really important bit. And we actually ended the paper on this, that one of the most important things that the GP can do when someone's got this miserable condition is to say, I witness your suffering. I recognise this is absolutely rotten. Um, you know, like we do when the menopausal woman comes in and talks about the hot flushes and all that kind of thing. It's like, I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, you know, this isn't going to last forever. The likelihood is you're going to get better. I don't know when, 
but here I'm I'm there for you. I'm here for you, and and that's an important thing. And that uh, we also mentioned things like um, you know time continuity. Um, those those old fashioned GP um, values, which um, keep coming up as being so important, but aren't always valued so much by. Um, the sort of policymakers. Yeah, perhaps. yeah, and I would say I'm not. I'm not sure that it needs to be a GP. I'm sure a nurse practitioner okay. would be at least as good as, as a GP at this kind of <laughs> Better. thing. Better. Um, but one of the new service models that could emerge is online support, where there is a little bit of continuity of care, so that you'd have your video link to. Um, for example, a specialist respiratory nurse or, or whatever, and that you check in with her or him once a week. Um, and maybe all you'd be doing is having a good moan about the fact that you still can't make it up the stairs without getting breathless. Um, but, but then that continuity of care, that relationship-based care, it, it is an important therapeutic component. Yeah. So looking to the future a little bit, uh, you've already mentioned... Um, some, something about research, but um, are we likely to get answers to, to some of these unknowns in the next few months, years, or, or are we just, if the research isn't going on, um, is this as good as we're going to get? I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of research happening. There's a lot of research that isn't particularly systematic happening, that it, a lot of this is sort of routine data being parceled up and put in tables and sent off to journals. I mean, you know, the BMJ is overwhelmed with, with that kind of paper and then they, get, they go over into the spillover journals. And so you then get sort of vast numbers of papers to look at and you think, oh, not another one like this. So there's that kind of research and, and, and you know, the signal to noise ratio is probably not going to improve. The, the, the really high quality systematic research, yes, we are doing some. Um, Simon de Lusignan, for example, in um, just to, to name one person, the Royal College of GPs, Sentinel Practices, which have been going for more than 50 years now, um, they are supplying data on continuing symptoms in people with COVID. And at some point, you know, Simon's team will produce uh, some papers, I'm sure. Um, the other area of research, which is really, really interesting, is all the citizen science stuff. So Tim Spector's work with the Zoe app at King's, yeah. um, where there's sort of millions of people now have downloaded this app and they're putting in the symptoms. He's producing some very interesting data. Um, so that will be another source. And then patients themselves. Um, so, for example, the Body Politic group, uh, there's there's various different long COVID support groups, all of which have several hundred members. Uh, so one of them emailed me the other day and said it must be a bit like the Judea People's Front and the People's Front of Judea. You know, the, the, why, are the, um, why are there so many of these different patient support groups? Why aren't we just one single group? And she was saying the, the answer is, well, we all just kind of emerged and, and we're not rivals, but it's just the way things are. I would imagine that those groups will also do uh, a kind of research. Uh, and I think that will be very important research because although people like me who are Oxford professors might be a bit sniffy about their sampling frames and maybe we take issue with the way they've analysed their data and all the rest of it, nevertheless, that is very raw and authentic and, you know, real 
experience-based research it's going to have to be interpreted in in um you know in, in a circumspect way but that's true of just about any research so i think i think patient-led research is going to be good the citizen science stuff um the the sort of uh, learning health system stuff where you're where you're using the electronic patient record data to feed into kind of aggregated graphs of what's going up and what's going down uh so this, there's some good stuff um, and yeah, my team are doing some qualitative research, doing lots of interviews with people about their long COVID, um, which is why I've yeah got quite excited about this topic. You've been listening to Trish Greenhouse, Professor of Primary Care at the University of Oxford. The paper which prompted this chat is Management of Post-Acute COVID-19 in Primary Care and is online now. We'll put a link to that in the podcast text. That's it for this podcast, but we'll be back next week with another one of our deep breath in episodes. This time we're looking at pill checks and how contraceptive appointments might not be so quick and easy as we all think. Deep breath in is on all your usual podcast places, so subscribe to us so you don't miss out on those. I'm Tom Nolan. Thanks for listening.